Hello and welcome to the Old Man Sailing Podcast. I'm John Passmore and today we're going to start with the story of the farmer, the bull and the windlass. Did you hear the story of the Spanish farmer and the bull? This farmer had a brand new calf and it was time for it to move out of the stable and into the field during the daytime. But the calf wouldn't budge out of his stall. No matter how much the farmer cajoled and rattled the bucket of grain, the calf refused to move. In the end, the farmer lost patience, hoisted the animal onto his shoulders and carried him across the road to the field. The next day, he tried again with the bucket of grain and even a slice of bread. Calves love a slice of bread. But no, the calf was adamant. He wasn't going anywhere. With a sigh, the farmer bent down, put his head under the animal's belly and straightened up the calf lying across his shoulders, and, once again, walked across the road to the field. And this happened the next day, and the next. Eventually, the farmer gave up on the bucket of grain and the bread, and even the pointless attempt to coax the calf to walk by himself. In other words, carrying the calf across the road became a habit. But as the calf grazed the good grass in the field, he began to grow. Imperceptibly, day by day, he grew bigger and he grew heavier. But the routine continued and every day as the farmer lifted the calf onto his shoulders, he grew stronger and stronger. And it is said that if you go to a particular village in Andalusia early in the morning, you can see a crowd gathered around a farm gate to watch an old grey-haired farmer walk across the road carrying a full-grown bull on his shoulders. I don't know where this story came from, but I've always loved the moral, which, of course, is that Well, you can work it out for yourself. And I have been reminded of it over the past few days because of the anchor windlass. If you look back through this blog, you will find various references to the windlass. It has worked on and off for the past two years. From time to time, for no reason that I can deduce, it will just go click instead of winding in the chain. I have checked everything that can be checked the brilliant electronics engineer Art Butler of Deben Marine Limited has toiled over it on several occasions. Most recently, only a couple of weeks ago, when he drove up to Lowestoft to clean the commutator. He even ordered a special cleaning implement for me so that I could do this myself. And what happened on Saturday evening in the Falmouth Haven anchorage with an hour to dusk and a sprightly 20 knots blowing across the deck? click. I couldn't believe it. I hadn't used it once since Art's ministrations. Of course, the only thing to do was to pull the thing up by hand. I always assumed that with 20 kilo anchor on the end of a 10 millimeter chain and me being the old man of 70, this was not an option. Uh, But I did pull it up. I took it slowly, nipped back to the cockpit from time to time to drive the boat forward, and then back again to break out the anchor. And I've been doing this ever since. Twice when I sailed overnight to Plymouth and anchored in Barn Pool, did a short stay in Mayflower Marina to pick up the spinnaker, and then back to the pool before returning to Falmouth the next day. Here I anchored off St Just and moved last night to Falmouth Banks, ready for the overnight wind shift. And just like the farmer and his bull, I began to get into the habit. The secret, I found, is to take your time and let the boat move up as the weight of the catenary takes over the pull and wear gloves. Eventually, you end up with the chain straight up and down and the anchor still well dug in. 
breaking it out is going to be really hard work. So this is where you put the engine into reverse and once again let the boat do the work. As soon as she starts to move back, showing that the anchor is free, click into neutral and now all you have to do is haul up the remaining chain and the anchor itself. Of course, the deeper the water, the more there is to haul up. At the moment, on Falmouth Bank, just after low tide, I have 8.6 metres from the bow roller to the bottom, which means 17 kilos of chain and 20 kilos of anchor. A total of 37 kilos to begin with. But, of course, less as it comes in, and I begin to tire. I know there will be times when this last part of the process has to be completed in double-quick time as the boat begins to drift, and if the worst comes to the worst, I can leave it dangling for a moment or two while I nip back to the cockpit. The other thing is that as I get more confident, I'm beginning to see the benefits. For a start, I can stop paying Art to come and try and fix it. The last resort of sending the windlass back to Lofrens might not be necessary after all. Also, if I can do this now, and continue to do it every few days from now on, then presumably I will still be doing it when I'm 80. And won't that be something to be proud of? Is it possible that I may be able to remove the wretched thing entirely? That would reduce the clutter on the foredeck and take 25 kilos off the bow, which would do wonders for the trim. Do you think that, just like the Spanish farmer with his bull, I might attract a bit of a crowd? Update from May the 22nd, 2019. Of course, the real test was going to come when I had to lift all 50 metres of chain vertically. That was going to weigh 120 kilos. Well, of course, if all of it was hanging straight down, that would mean that I had anchored in something over 250 metres, and I can't imagine anywhere that I would do that. But there would come a time when I would have all the chain out. It happened in Loch Spell von Mull in the Hebrides. The corner sheltered from the southwesterly, right down to the end of the left-hand spur. It looked just right, except that it shelved so steeply that either I was going to be in 13 metres or on the beach. It had to happen sometime. I let it all out, adding two metres for the difference between the depth transducer and the bow roller. I should really have 51 metres out, but in fact, given the necessary amount on deck and the slack on the snubber, it was probably only 49. Still, it all had to be hauled up, and the vertical lift would be 50 kilos. I left the engine ticking over ahead and started pulling. Once the chain was going into the water sideways, I sauntered back to the cockpit and clicked her into reverse, which gave me a chance to catch my breath. Then back to the foredeck and more hauling. The blue and yellow 35-metre markers appeared, and the white and yellow 25 metres. It was at about this time that the people on the little motor cruiser from the other side of the anchorage returned from taking their dog ashore in the rib. They made a detour to get within hailing distance. Do you need any help? I hadn't realised that I looked as though I was struggling. I must say, I was slightly disappointed, which sounds churlish. No thanks, I called back. Some people go to the gym. I do this. Further update, October 2019. I did get it fixed, needed a new control box, it turned out, and then in Alderney, in the UK Channel Islands, anchored in 11.5 metres in a 25-knot wind and with 47 metres of chain out, the windlass packed up again. I reckoned I had 12 hours to get the anchor up and scoot across the channel before a forecast northerly gale set in. Alderney being no place to get caught in a northerly gale. In fact, 
It was a lot less trouble than I expected. I put the engine in slow ahead and pulled in a metre of chain. Belayed as the boat veered to one side and the chain became taut, eventually her head swung through the wind and the chain went slack and I pulled in another metre. This process continued and I later realised oh, another benefit. Each time the pull changed direction, the anchor must have been rocked from side to side, loosening its hold. Eventually it came up without my even noticing when it broke out. Meanwhile, it looks as though the wretched thing will have to come off and go back to Loughran's agent this winter. The Birds Joshua Slocum, on his solo voyage around the world, looked up into the cockpit one dark and stormy night and saw the pilot of Drake's ship, the Pinter, at the wheel. Jean Le Cam, in the Vendée Globe race, held his sister in his arms and woke up hugging a sailbag. Hallucinations, when you're alone at sea, are not unusual. Feeling somebody touch the back of your neck, however, on only the second night of a passage from Falmouth to Carnarvon, especially when pushed by northerlies into that empty gap between the Smalls and the Tuscar Rock Separation Scheme, where there's just nothing but empty sea, and on this occasion not a breath of wind, well, something's up. I'd had nothing to do for the past eighteen hours but sleep and read and sit in the cockpit drinking coffee and watching some tiny land birds flutter about the boat and try and balance on the guard rails. So this was just plain creepy. But there, it happened again. Just as I was pouring hot water into the pot, a feather-light touch on the back of the neck. That was when I realised that the birds, having given up on the guardrails, were now in the cabin. Six of them, whizzing about like rockets, exploring. It was a scene from Hitchcock. Then they got into the forecastle, which, now that it's been turned into the shed, and is full of sails, and the bike, and the dinghy, and the new enormous ball fender, well, it's easy for a small bird to get lost in there and start panicking. With all six of them simultaneously bouncing off the chandlery and banging their heads on the windows, they didn't do much for my state of mind either. I got in there too and started waving my arms about and shouting. In the end, of course, we all calmed down enough to take some pictures. One of them perched on my hand and even allowed me to carry him to the companionway and toss him into the sky like Noah and the dove. I hope he made it back to land. He hasn't reappeared with an olive twig. Another made a nest in the cockpit with a couple of non-slip mats for a cushion. He was gone by the morning. It was only then that I found another had settled down beside the petrol can. Maybe it was too cramped down there to spread his wings, I don't know. Anyway, he was dead in the morning. I gave him a sailor's burial, complete with a short prayer appropriate to a poor dead bird. I've no idea what he was. Maybe there's a twitcher out there who can help. Three responses to the matter of the birds. All of them saying, they were sparrows. The Best Sailing in Europe The authors of the Clyde Cruising Club's pilot books are gentlemen, not given to hyperbole. One assumes they are gentlemen, with starched collars and whiskers and deckhands in the forecastle to work the vessel. After all, their guide to the waters from Kintar to Ardnamochen begins with a poem from the Log of the Blue Dragon in 1903. Advice for a passage through the fearsome gulf of Corryvrecken is that it should be taken in calm weather at slack water, and then goes on to recommend that all hatches should be closed and all crew would be well advised to have a lifeline attached if going forward. So, 
when they say that this stretch of coast and its outlying islands offer some of the best and most varied sailing that can be found anywhere in Europe, it is time to sit up and take notice. So why didn't they mention that it is like going back to school? I have just spent more than an hour with the gentleman's comments, the tide tables for Oban, two charts that cover the area in question, and an exercise book which is rapidly filling up with information such as Firth of Lawn, southwest going 0600 to 1225 BST, then clockwise, and Ardenmeer to south point of Luing, two miles, anchorage at Kilchatton Bay, a weight north going stream through sound from 1225 BST, then lock spell question mark. I put that down only because Tinker's Hole was looking doubtful with a northwesterly. Or, of course, I could just stay in the sound of Jura, which gives me such options as Lowland Man's Bay or going into Loch Sween. The trouble with the most varied sailing anywhere in Europe is that there are too many options. I'm not even going to bother to count the number of possible destinations just for tomorrow. Or, of course, I could just stay here. Here is a tiny little hole in the rocks between Ling and Torsa. It's called Ardina Mir. It boasts, according to the gentleman, a notorious narrow entrance. And it is. First you have to identify a white cottage, then a gravel patch, after that a white mark on the shore, then a green perch, and then a red perch, with only a metre of water between them at low tide. And when you get there, holding is sometimes poor in wheat. But I had no choice. Ling has a post office, and I had a letter to post. More remarkable, Ling has a working phone box, with a telephone directory on the shelf. Hebridean islands are not like other places. The population of Ardenamir is 162, ten children in the primary school. At the end of the 19th century, the census counted 632, but that was with the slate mining in full swing. Now it's holiday cottages, a bit of lobster fishing, and curious brown cattle inspecting the solitary visitor on his way to the post office. In fact, the solitude, the sense of temporarily being somewhere off the planet, is almost tangible. Sit in the cockpit in the evening and time seems to stand still, for the very good reason that the evening lasts until nearly midnight. In fact, just to test it, Leaving Lockspell for Jura a few days later, and not having pinged off the blog post because there was not so much as a smidgen of a mobile phone signal, it seemed like a good idea to sail overnight just for the experience. Twilight lasted from after dinner until I dropped anchor in Lark Tarbot and broad daylight in time for breakfast at 5am. <coughs> One of the best things about having a podcast, and a blog come to that, and the books, and don't forget the YouTube channel, is that I get an enormous amount of correspondence. All sorts of people write with comments and opinions, and sometimes we even progress to WhatsApp video calls. A good many of them, of course, are of a certain age, with all the ailments this brings. Only today I have heard from someone who had been prevented from returning to his boat in the Caribbean because of a herniated disc, while another had the leisure to write from France because he's in hospital after an angina attack. And that is quite apart from all those misty-eyed former yachties who sold their boats when Anno Domini overtook them. It then turns out that a good many of these people are actually younger than me. I don't like to preach, but for heaven's sake, if you haven't looked at the Good Health page on the blog, I really would recommend it. oldmansailing.com forward slash good hyphen health. The Isle of Man TT the TT stands for 
tourist trial. The fastest and most dangerous road race in the world. Madmen on motorcycles flinging themselves round 37 miles of town squares and mountain roads at average speeds of 130 miles an hour. The top speed is over 200 miles an hour. The madman thing comes from the middle Sunday, Mad Sunday, when anyone with a motorcycle can ride the course. The death toll since it started in 1907 has now reached 146. So I have come to the Isle of Man. I happen to like motorcycles. I like the way they look. I like the way they sound, as long as they don't disturb my peace and quiet. And there was a time when I owned a motorcycle. In my early twenties I had a BSA Bantam and came within an inch of killing myself in Streatham High Road. An inch on each side, that is. That was the distance between the bike and the bus I was overtaking on one side and the oncoming lorry on the other. I sold it soon afterwards and haven't had one since. I'm quite dangerous enough in a car. But finding myself in Islay in the Hebrides and happening to see that the TT was about to start and having nothing more than a vague plan to visit Dublin before I'm due in Pucheli on June the 8th, the chance was too good to miss. Also, I needed to dry out against a convenient harbour wall to grease the feathering propeller and see to the anodes. The perfect place would be Ramsey on the island's east coast, a drying harbour with three of the best spectator spots on the course, including Parliament Square. The idea of negotiating a town square and still keeping up the 136 mile an hour average would be something to see. It was all settled. I could anchor overnight in the bay, enter the harbour at high water first thing in the morning, and be up against the wall by lunchtime. Plenty of time to get the boat work done and see something of the bikes. As you can guess, by this stage, something is going to go wrong. First, the harbour master came round. He was a friendly chap and very helpful. One of the fishing boats had broken down and his mate was going out to get him, which meant that they would need some space to manoeuvre and would I move and berth further down the quay. No trouble at all, except neither of us appreciated that the water was a bit deeper there, and this being neeps I had to creep round with it halfway up my wellies. While all this was going on, it started to rain, and of course the TT death toll is quite high enough without allowing wet roads into the mix, so practice was cancelled for the day. Never mind, maybe Thursday's session would go ahead. On the evening high tide, I moved out into the bay and anchored as close to the southwest corner as I could get, the forecast being a brisk southwesterly. Actually, I couldn't get very close at all. The Isle of Man is one of those places where the beaches stretch for miles. It looked a long way in my tiny, lightweight, inflatable dinghy, just 2.3 metres long and weighing only 10 kilos. When I chose it, the idea was to inflate it in a trice and carry it around on my head. Now I fancied a big rib with a 30 horsepower outboard on the back. All day the TT news played in Samsara's cabin. Again the afternoon practice was cancelled. Maybe it would resume at 1820. At 1700 I inflated the dinghy, with a little 2.2 horsepower on the back, hammering away for all it was worth into the wind, I set off for the beach. Halfway there I realised I hadn't switched on the AIS. It's always a good idea to switch on the AIS when you leave your boat at anchor. Not only can you use your phone to check that she's still there, but if you search on this blog for a post called Lost at Sea, you will learn how it saved me and my son Hugo one foggy day in Swanage. And if, unimaginably, the boat should drag her anchor and disappear out to sea, you can always charter a fishing boat and track her down. Still... I was halfway there. Too bad.
The beach that had looked so welcoming through binoculars now revealed itself as a quarter of a mile of wet sand, up which the water was advancing as if it wanted a race of its own. If I left the motor at the water's edge and carried the dinghy above the high water mark, the motor would be swamped by the time I got back to it. If I took the motor first, the dinghy would float away. The answer was to leapfrog them, twenty paces with the motor, then dash back for the dinghy, hoist it on my head and wobble hurriedly past the motor as far as I dared. I have seen people in Africa carrying enormous loads on their heads. They all had perfect posture and seemed to know where they were going. If I didn't look down, I was going to trip over something. Add to that the dinghy's ten kilos is without the seat and the oars. By the time I reached the top and tied the painter to a stump, every time I turned my head I could hear things creaking inside. It was a mile to Parliament Square, and, sure enough, there was a pub crowded with people in black TT race gear, clutching pints of lager in plastic glasses. Just to be sure, before I bought my own pint, I asked the nearest of them, Is this a good place to watch? He turned from his beer. It's cancelled. What? When did they cancel it? About twenty minutes ago. We'd left our tent at the campsite, got here, and then we heard. A smattering of small raindrops blew into his plastic glass. I had checked the five o'clock news before blowing up the dinghy. That was an hour and ten minutes ago. So what was the good news? Well, the good news was that if I left the pub now and went straight back to the boat, I wouldn't have to worry about her disappearing. That was all yesterday. Today there is a 35-knot wind blowing the rain sideways and whipping the half-mile fetch from the beach into the kind of waves that break on the bow and send spray onto the decks outside the head's window. I've got a better idea. It's due to drop tonight. I'll leave for Dublin. Plenty of pubs there. Too sensitive by half. I'm writing this with a cup of coffee at my side, as you do. It took no time at all to make. Well, it didn't once I'd woken up at 7.30 in the morning with the gas alarm going off, pulled the sleeping bag over my head, hoping the incessant beeping would sort itself out, which it did after twenty minutes. However, it started again twenty minutes after that, and this time it didn't stop. The gas alarm doesn't like the wet and the cold, and I'm in Dublin, where it hasn't stopped raining for days. Does anyone else have this sort of trouble, or do you religiously turn off the gas at the cylinder every time, or maybe just trust that everything will be all right and the boat won't blow up after all. I have always had a rather difficult relationship with gas on boats. Ever since watching my father pump the bilges dry, which he did every day, this being a wooden boat, and once he had finished, he would continue pumping for another fifty strokes, just pumping air, or as he explained, getting rid of any gas that's escaped down there. So, I grew up assuming that there would always be some gas wafting around in the bilges, waiting for an errant spark to blow the whole shebang sky high. Over the years I have made several attempts to get away from gas. In the little caprice I tried an alcohol stove, but that was even more frightening. Sheets of bright yellow flame right up to the deckhead. Aboard Largo, my old rival 32, I fell in love with the wonderful brass tailor's paraffin cooker. It was a veritable antique and looked the part. Unfortunately, it required all the care and attention you would expect of an antique. Making a cup of coffee was a project. You had to plan for it, prepare the apparatus, and even then you might end up with similar sheets of bright yellow flame, only this time accompanied by clouds of foul-smelling black smoke. This seemed to exhaust all the options, although it should be noted that one of the boats in the Ocean Cruising Club's Celtic Rally had an induction hob which got fired up whenever they plugged into the marina mains. They had a washing machine, too.
Anyway, with samsara, I reckoned I'd earned the right to go down the easy route and stick with gas. I did, however, bring in a shipwright to build a sealed locker as required by the survey, and a marine gas engineer to check the installation and fit an alarm, which he did in strict accordance with the instructions. These stated that the two sensors should be fitted in the lowest possible position where they will remain dry. The most suitable location for the detector is near any gas appliance at floor level or just under the floorboards. So they ended up in the bilge. That first winter the boat was out of the water and from New Year until the end of March the thermometer didn't creep over 9 degrees centigrade for a single day. I know, I had some painting to do. By the time I did get down to it, the cold and the damp had kept the alarm beeping for so long it flattened the battery. I moved the sensors from just under the floorboards to just above them. It was only afterwards that I discovered why the bilges were always full of water. Leaks in the freshwater tanks, with the stern gland adding enough salt to throw me off the scent. Anyway, once we were back in the water in April and I dunked the lee rail trying to scrape round the wind farm off the wallet, the bilge water appeared above the floorboards and started lapping at the sensors, which, of course, set off the alarm all over again. So I moved them up another level, one in the saucepan locker and the other tucked low down right at the back of the cooker. It was the perfect place for detecting gas, just a lousy one for changing the sensors. You see, by this time I had spent some hours on the phone to the manufacturers being terribly polite until they succeeded in selling me two spares. Ever since then I have kept one pair in a sealed plastic bag and made sure that the old ones are good and dry before they take over for their stint as the spares. And this would be fine if only I hadn't chosen low down at the back of the cooker as the ideal place. It is not ideal especially when trying to locate four little holes for the sensor's four little prongs, and all before breakfast. In the end, the cooker has to come out, the whole cabin filled with tools. I scraped my knuckles, lost another nut to the collection in the bilges, and finally the low-down under the cooker at the back sensor is low-down at the front, and has finally stopped bleeping. It's not ideal, my good friend the gas engineer will probably wash his hands of me, but I don't care. In fact, I have an enormous sense of well-being. That's what comes from having a cup of coffee beside you, and nothing going beep. Of course, I have no idea when you're listening to this. That's the good thing about podcasts. I put it out there on a Sunday afternoon on a not particularly nice weekend in the Canary Islands. You listen to it whenever and wherever you like. So, this bit of contemporaneous news will probably be rather out of date when you get it. And, of course, of not much interest unless you have some connection with the United Kingdom. But those of us who are with Utility Warehouse for our household services are rather excited to hear that the company has just come top in which magazine's energy company rankings. And this is to add to the U-Switch award they picked up the other week. Then, of course, you get the further savings from bundling all your household services together and the shopping. Well, that alone was just under £700 last year. It's a good deal. Drop me an email if you'd like a quote. John at oldmansailing.com And now another chapter from my book, The Good Stuff. This is book one, which incidentally you can buy as an audible version, read by the excellent Charles Robert Fox. This is The O-Star. In 1988, I fulfilled my great ambition and sailed Largo in the single-handed transatlantic race. The Evening Standard gave me time off. Indeed, it had been a prerequisite of accepting the job. In order to justify this, they gave me a single sideband radio to send back dispatches as I went along. In those days, 
This was done by dictating to a copy-taker sitting at a typewriter with a pair of headphones clamped over his ears. These copy-takers are now extinct, but they were as idiosyncratic as the dinosaurs, and just as cantankerous. This meant that if you dictated at the height of a gale off the Grand Banks and happened to mention that the decks were spume-filled, they were just as likely type fume-filled. The sub-editors had no idea what was going on and just pushed it through. So I have left the howlers as they were printed for authenticity. Tuesday, 31st of May. The greatest moment of my life will arrive at 12 noon on Sunday the 5th of June. I'm very lucky. Not everyone has such a prompt appointment with ecstasy. That is when I will sail my boat over the starting line of the greatest single-handed race in the world and set course for America. Me and a hundred others, each with our own reasons for wanting to sail alone across the notoriously violent Atlantic, where the only certainty is that we shall be wet and cold and uncomfortable. We will be permanently tired, often frightened and probably lonely as well. The last time somebody came up to me and said, Why? I told them, It's fun. You should try it sometime. Which is a bit like describing the 1812 overture as a rather jolly tune. For me, this is not so much as a race as an emotional experience. I've been living with it since I was 11. That was 1960, when my parents took me to the Walton and Frinton Yacht Club to hear a lecture by one Francis Chichester, who had just won the first race. I can't remember much about it, except that he showed a slide of half a dozen dolphins diving in formation out of a breaking wave, and hoped that the race would be organised on a regular basis. I hoped so too. I didn't want them abandoning it before I had a chance. I took to reading the books in which successful competitors described how ghastly it was for much of the time, and how they wouldn't have missed it for the world, and I made my plans. What kind of boat? What route to take? The best way to ride out a storm? That kind of stuff. It's easy when it's just a dream. The dream crept into reality so slowly that it was impossible to say exactly when it became a fact. All I know is that five years ago, when I sold my little boat and set out to look for one that I could stand up in, I was also looking for a boat that would cross an ocean. I found a rival 32 called Margot, and my superstition against changing boats' names relented only to the extent of one letter. I rechristened her Largo. She might have continued to potter about the channel if it had not been for an unexpected fortnight when I found myself without a crew. Five days after leaving Poole, I arrived in Santander in northern Spain, feeling as if I would burst with satisfaction. Excitement of that kind really ought to be shared. Going out for a solitary meal and hoping for a chatty waitress is not enough. That's why races like this one are ideal for normal, gregarious people who just happen to like sailing on their own. We're an assorted bunch because this race is like that. On the one hand, you have the gigantic, lightweight catamarans and trimarans on huge sponsorship budgets. And then there are the amateurs like me, without a hope of winning, but who view the idea of getting to the other side as a victory in its own right. Monday, 6th of June. The great moment escaped in the confusion. Somewhere in the frenetic melee at the start of the race yesterday, I sailed Largo across the line and completely forgot to savour the beginning of an adventure. The full realisation that, after all the planning, the race was finally on came when the chaos resolved itself into one of those days so perfect that you could splice it onto the end of a Hollywood weepy. But first there came the horror movie, the heart-stopping sight of the big yachts bearing down like brightly painted battering rams. 
The start is generally considered to be the most terrifying part of the race. With 100 boats jockeying for position, all you need is a hatful of wind to turn the regatta into a creditable reconstruction of the Battle of the Nile. To begin with, we just drifted around in circles. But then, when the wind did arrive, it merely turned three hours of aimless frustration into a combined competitive spirit not altogether desirable. At least half the skippers threw caution to what winds there were and aimed for the plum spot on the line. And yes, I was one of them. I have a vague recollection of not being able to see any water. On one side there was a Norwegian who had cut the front nine inches off his boat to get into a smaller class, and on the other a Frenchman who carried a 56-pound bag of onions and threatened to melt any troublesome icebergs by breathing on them. Ahead there was an American flying an enormous flag, and behind me, inevitably, was UAP 1992, the 60-foot satellite garden centre. The fleet parted before it. Largo, of course, got left behind. This may have had something to do with her age, her comfortable design, or even the fact that she was laden with enough duty-free stores for both the outward and return voyages. But mostly, it was because ten minutes after King Constantine fired the starting cannon, Largo's skipper stopped worrying about the other boats and determined instead to enjoy the growing warm wind and sparkling sea as the boat romped past the Ediston lighthouse towards the distant horizon. Monday, 13th of June. Feeling a little jaded and not much like getting down to work, I threw a party last night. Before the race committee reached for the rule book and the bit about no physical contact with other boats at sea, I should explain that this was quite the most extraordinary party I have ever given. None of the guests actually met. It all started on the sked. The regular chat on the radio on Saturday morning when James Hatfield silenced us all by remarking that he had been awarded the MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours. James is a remarkable young man, and the news that he was celebrating his latest honour with a solitary bottle of champagne some 800 miles out in the Atlantic was clearly unacceptable. So... When British Telecom's maritime radio station at Portishead broadcast the weather forecast later that morning, they also announced the award and that a celebration would be held at 1945 GMT. So, the evening found me sitting by Largo's radio in a white silk dinner jacket, neat black tie and a bottle of champagne cooling in a bucket of Atlantic Ocean at my feet. First arrival was Robin Knox Johnson. He apologised for his oldest jeans, but he was sailing Sue Haley, the boat which took him round the world in 1968, but leaks of it. He'd spent the day trying to fix the engine. James arrived, saying he'd had terrible trouble getting a cab. Other guests checked in. Later, I drank a silent toast to the guests who couldn't make it, the many in this race who do not carry a long-range radio. For most, it is a matter of finance. Others, of course, really do enter these races for the solitude. As a Frenchman said in Plymouth when I explained about the radio and the evening standard, Then you are not alone. No, I suppose not. But neither am I going round the bend. I really do have a white silk dinner jacket on this boat. Friday, 17th of June. It was when the bean sprouts hit the deck that the facade of civilization finally cracked. Bean sprouts are notorious. If it were only a matter of vitamins, then the synatogen tablets would be adequate, but synatogen tablets tossed in French dressing don't really go with pâté de canard de champignon. So, bean sprouts it had to be, and now they are everywhere. 
and this being a boat and somewhat damp, they are going to grow. By the time we get to America, I'll have to eat my way out of the cabin. The boat's lurching had caused the bean sprout center of gravity to shift by six feet. And this time it was not only because we were romping steadily through the waves to Newport, it was because we were becalmed and rolling like a pig on wet clover. As another mariner, whose poetic sensibilities were presumably not interrupted by an airborne larder, once observed, the ocean never sleeps. So, even though there are no actual waves, the swell remains, rolling the boat onto her ear, and then two seconds later onto her other ear. It's been like that for two days now. The northerly wind, which blew so steadily for a week to send us shooting out into the ocean at unheard-of speeds, stayed just long enough to ensure Monsieur Poupon got his record. And then it stopped completely. The red ensign hung like a rag at the stern, and the rolling began. It's best when this happens to pretend it hasn't, to carry on with the jaunty air of one who knows his right, and whose right includes a respectable breeze, and to mumble to oneself, Ah, it is a fine wind, to be sure. This does not, of course, make any difference, but it does stop an otherwise sentient being from degenerating into some lower form of life who stumbles about kicking the furniture, and usually it works. It works very well, in fact, until the bean sprouts take to the air. So, when what will certainly prove to have been not the last bean sprout was finally retrieved from the bilges, a pathetic, admonishing finger emerged from the hatchway, and an hysterical voice announced, Not a hand on a rope, you hear me? Not a finger on a rope until there is wind. And with that, the hatch slammed shut. Tuesday, 21st of June. Whatever it was that I was looking for in sailing the ocean alone, I believe I found it right here, 1,200 miles from Land's End, at 1.30 in the morning. It was after a dinner of chicken curry with a great handful of sultanas and a sunset that bled pink and violet across the sky. A sliver of moon was the finishing touch. This was the night to do what I had planned all along. I stood in the hatchway to watch the stars. I had a little book to show me which was which. One day I planned to take the sextant to them. All this, too, was perfect. I found Cassiopeia and Capella, Aldebaran and the Pleiades, and I looked about me at the long, pale carpet of green phosphorescence that was the wake. It's a sight which never palls. Tiny organisms in the water light up as they're disturbed by the passing of the keel. Any movement in the water turns them on, the bow waves spreading out like green fire, Waves in the distance flash like lighthouses on a distant shore. And two torpedoes came out of the south and headed straight for the boat. They came on at an astonishing speed, leaving long, pencil-thin trails of light behind them. Just when it seemed they must hit, and I found myself tense for the explosion, the twin streaks turned and broke the surface with a soft fot, fot. The dolphins were back. They'd been around on and off all the way, playing about the boat by night, covered in phosphorescence, and to a lone sailor becoming very susceptible to changes in mood, they were unbearably wonderful. There were five of them. They switched and crisscrossed just a few feet below me, their hard, supple bodies lit up like incandescent bullets as they passed effortlessly through the water, breathing with that characteristic exhalation. I was up in the bows for nearly an hour. The wind increased, sending flurries of spray over my legs, but I couldn't be the first to go. When they finally left, I was stiff and cold. 
I limped back along the side deck and stood for a moment holding on to the rigging and looking out into the night. I called out to them. I called, Goodbye. Foolish, perhaps, but when I sat down I found I had to wash my glasses. You have to do that when you get salt on them. Salt on the outside means spray, but salt on the inside, that's emotion. Thursday, 23rd of June. It wasn't so very long ago that people in this position suffered from a nasty creeping feeling that at any moment they were going to fall off the edge of the world. I can see their point. For the last fortnight I've been watching the little crosses on the chart pick their way westwards, progressing in a somewhat haphazard fashion towards not America, but the edge of the chart. The hydrographer of the Navy presumably drew the North Atlantic four and a half feet wide on the assumption that anyone interested in what was on the other side would be getting there in something big enough to spread it out. But I've been looking at the same bit of chart long enough now to believe that the edge represents the edge of the known world, and that when I turn it over, I'll find vague outlines of half-discovered continents and legends in copperplate scripts saying, Here be monsters. Also, I had the uncomfortable feeling that the ocean itself would somehow be represented differently, full of icebergs and covered in fog, for example, which is the traditional recipe for the second half of the race. So this morning, with more trepidation than ceremony, I turned the chart. The most startling discovery was that it was clean. The eastern half had a coffee stain the size of Spain situated just west of Ireland. Spain itself was obliterated with little calculations and the message, our galaxy will ultimately collide with the galaxy Andromeda which will cause a disturbance. This is something I heard on the World Service and intend to use some day when I need an understatement. Even the position fixes had about them an air of uncertainty. Instead of the precise crosses which the hydrographer had intended, there was a series of dots and asterisks with lines and arrows running between them as if a spider with muddy feet was emigrating. So, if the chart is to be believed, we are now closer to the finish than the start. It's all downhill from here. At least, it is if you don't inspect the keel too closely and make up the Labrador current which brings down the icebergs and the Gulf Stream that tries to push you back to Plymouth. Then there are the Newfoundland Grand Banks with their fog and looming trawlers and the notes about hydrocarbon exploration areas see caution. There's even a funk island, which shouldn't surprise anyone. Come to think of it, the hydrographer might just as well have written Here Be Monsters after all. Thursday the 30th of June With only 600 miles to go, it may be a little late but I have at last started racing in earnest. Sitting here in the mess of dripping oilskins, towels that will never dry, and an incongruous and discarded pair of carpet slippers, the discomfort is suddenly immaterial. The fact is that there is a gale shrieking out of the south, and Largo is romping towards the finishing line like a thoroughbred suddenly given her head purely because I did get up at three o'clock in the morning, struggle into clammy, foul-weather clothes and slither about the fume-filled deck setting the absolute maximum amount of sail, we are now shooting straight up the sides of huge Atlantic rollers to break through the crests in a welter of spray and then go crashing into the trough beyond with a thud that shakes the boat from masthead to keel. This is what they call driving a boat and is the reason for so many of the entries in this race retiring before they get this far. It is the sort of thing cruising yachtsmen frown on as sheer folly and bad seamanship to boot. But I spent a month rebuilding and strengthening this boat for just this moment, 
and now when she hurls her seven tons from the top of a twenty-foot wall of water it is with a solid satisfying sensation rather than like a pantechnican crushing motorway cones every time the motion eases every time i look out of the window and find the side decks no longer running with water I dive once more into those soggy oilies and cram on more sail like some demented clipper captain trying for the record. It hardly seems possible that this is the same pathetic figure who effectively withdrew from the race, not to mention the world at large, just because he was becalmed for two days. Where did this glory-hungry ocean tiger come from? The end is somehow tangible now. In fact, with the depth recorder I can touch 60 metres beneath the keel. It might not be what you call shallow water in the normal course of things, but it is a singular improvement on figures like 4,500 metres, which we've had for the previous three weeks. Monday, 4th of July. As an hallucination, the stranger in the fore-cabin was hardly convincing. But in a race which is turning out to be not nearly as lonely as its name suggests, we are rather short on the paranormal. All the same, it can give you a nasty turn, after a month alone, to be confronted by an oilskin-clad figure standing swaying gently with the motion of the boat. It doesn't last long, of course, just long enough to realise that this is your own suit of oilskins hanging up to dry. Personally, I found it a tremendous disappointment. I've been looking forward to a really impressive hallucination ever since I took up single-handed sailing. The combination of mild exhaustion and solitude provides a fragile environment for the wilder side of the imagination, and at some stage in a voyage I can usually expect to sense a creeping certainty that I am not alone. But this trip is different because I have the long-range radio. Officially, it's for sending back these dispatches, but I use it shamelessly not so much to bolster my sanity with a little human conduct as to lead a social life so busy that I have to keep a diary of appointments and stick notes above the chart table. There's the family to call and friends who have left messages of goodwill, but I do most of my talking with the people who share this experience, the other competitors. When things were grim, when the boat was being tossed about by a gale and I was tumbled around a cabin in which everything not tied down had hurled itself into a puddle on the floor, then it was comforting to hear that life on other boats was just as awful. Eventually the sense of humour would surface and someone would say, Don't you have a maid to clear that up? Also, it was cheering to know that if things should go wrong, help was within a hundred miles or so. In fact, when I was thrown across the cockpit and narrowly missed smashing my front teeth on a winch, I need not have worried. Forty-five miles away was a surgeon who specialised in rebuilding faces. Not only did he have a full operating kit on board, but also said that he would be prepared to make a house call. It's a camaraderie unknown in other sports. You could almost say that we sail single-handed, for the company. Monday the 11th of July. With 3,000 miles stretching out in the wake, it was the last four which became the most important. Like all the big moments in life, reaching the other side of the Atlantic came almost without warning. After snatches of sleep which added up to only four hours in the last 48, with a lighthouse flashing with the precision of a dying light bulb and remembering that in the last race one boat was wrecked just five miles from the finishing line, I might have missed it altogether. For the first time in a fortnight, we were charging along with the rigging hubbing and the bow wave setting up an impossibly loud roar. I stopped thinking of my boat as a construction of rope, wire, terrelene and fibreglass. Largo had come alive a long time ago, and now she was up and running to the finish and trusting me to point her in the right direction. I couldn't believe that on the last night I was going to turn out to be the weak link, but the fact was 
I didn't know where we were. I had known. I had navigated us down the coast of Nova Scotia, across the Nantucket Shoals, brought us within ten miles of Newport, Rhode Island and the finishing line, and, let's not be shy about it, success. And now I'd lost us. The Brenton Reef Light Tower, the powerful beacon which has welcomed generations of single-handed sailors at the end of this race, was nowhere to be seen. In its place was a dim yellow light flashing in an entirely different and erratic sequence. I was aware of being overtired, knowing full well the kind of stupid mistakes I was likely to make in this condition. I began shaking my head over the chart, muttering unfinished sentences, all of them including the word impossible. And all the while the feeble light flashed. It was quite some time before I thought to call up the Coast Guard. Sure, he would step out of his office and look. Sure, a few minutes later he confirmed that the light was out of sync, and yes, it was operating on reduced intensity. He announced the news with all the polite interest of one who views lighthouses as historical monuments. It's nice to see them still working in this day of computerized position-finding. Evidently, it did not occur to him that there are some of us who still need them just as much as the clipper captains of old. Maybe they too, once they had established that they really were where they ought to be, relaxed and stood swaying easily with the motion of the ship as she headed like an arrow for the harbour mouth. They did not worry unduly about a photographer colleague who might be unhappy about recording the event in almost total darkness, and nor, I confess, did I. I had earned this moment, and nobody was going to make me wait a second longer for it. So, as dawn came up on Friday, entry number 91 crossed the line exactly 32 days, 21 hours, 40 minutes, and 30 seconds after leaving Plymouth. Even if it was 22 days and 12 hours behind the winner, you'd never have guessed not by the smile all over the skipper's face. Mm -hmm.